Our God and our Father, we do praise you that you are the God who opens the eyes of the blind, who sets prisoners free, who looses us from the chains of sin and death. Lord, thank you for that good news, the gospel which we find in your word. And Lord, as we come to this part of the Bible just now, we pray that you would speak to us, that none of those um, chains would pull us down, but that we would hear you clearly. Lord, come by your Spirit, so that we may learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. It isn't over till it's over, is it? No, I'm not entering a contest for stating the blindingly obvious, but it's true, it's something we know, it isn't over until it's over until the final whistle blows or until the finish line is crossed, until that dart hits the final double or until the final putt is sunk, or if you're not into sport, until the conductor lowers his baton or until the generously dimensioned lady starts to sing, it isn't over. How many people, though, have learned this the hard ways over the years? The musician who got through the hard part of a piece and switched their brain off, only to muck up the easy bit at the end. I've been there. The sportsman or woman who thought they had a trophy in their grasp, only to lose it at the last moment. Who could ever forget Rory McIlroy's horrendous 80 at Augusta when he was so far in front and ended up tied 15th. Bayern Munich in 1999 at the New Camp and for balance, AC Milan in 2005 in Istanbul. They thought they had the Champions League won, didn't they? But their opponents thought differently. Formula One drivers have gone out at the last corner. Moving house, I've known people whose arrangements have fallen through on the day of the move. Sorry if anybody here is moving house anytime soon. I don't mean to put you off. But think of, of the last minute, late night, deadline beating agreements that some of our politicians have made in the past and maybe could do with doing again. When the outcome of something looks certain or set in stone, it's important that we don't count our chickens before they're hatched. It isn't over until it's over. And in the book of Esther last week, we left things in a pretty gruesome place. Haman was executed. But in terms of how God's people are going to come out of the story, well, things are looking brighter, aren't they, than they were. Remember, it was Haman who was their biggest threat. He was in a, a very powerful position in the court of the king. We're never told why he is elevated to that position. But the king trusted him enough to allow him to make laws in his name. He gave him the signet ring because any edict sealed with the king's own signet ring was as good as the king saying it himself. And after he fell out with Mordecai, Haman became very angry. We thought about anger this morning. His anti-Semitism came to the fore. He had made this edict, sneakily not telling the king exactly who these people were, exactly what he was going to do, but that on the 13th day of the month of Adar, which is the 12th month in their calendar, all the Jews were to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, and their property seized. Esther then very bravely, she used her position as queen to appeal to the king to do something about this because she is Jewish too. The king's furious, he's been tricked by Haman, but there's not a lot he can do because the law has been made. But as Haman begs the queen for his life, Xerxes sees the way out. He sees him falling on the queen's couch and he accuses Haman of attempting to rape the queen. So he has him executed, hung on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And it would seem like we're already at the stage of happy ending. It's all been sorted out, hasn't it? God in control of all those little details that we saw last week which all led to Haman's downfall. 
but the Jews are far from safe yet. It isn't over until it's over. But the good news is, well, Haman has gone, and the even better news is that Mordecai seems to have replaced them. We read that in verse Verses 1 to 2 of chapter 8, that same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. He receives that signet ring that he's taken off Haman at some point, and gives it to Mordecai. But the bad news is that the decree that Haman made in the name of the king, it can't be undone. It still stands. The order cannot be repealed. Now, historians debate this, particularly those who want to criticize the Bible. They say that we don't have any historical evidence that Persian laws couldn't be repealed. We, we don't find this information anywhere else except the Bible. But the reality is that this isn't really that much of a problem for us. Because even if the law could technically be repealed, the king's not going to do it. He feels that he cannot appear to be weak. He cannot admit that he is wrong. He has already survived one assassination attempt, remember? He's over a kingdom with many nationalities and factions and rivalries. He can't admit that he's wrong or else his rule would be undermined. He would appear weak. He would be vulnerable to a coup. So in effect, the law is unrepealable. So when Esther requests that Xerxes writes a letter to revoke that law, he says, no, it can't be done. He says, look, I've already done lots for you. Verse 7, he says, because Haman attacked the Jews, I've given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Look, I've been good to you. I've got rid of Haman, but I'm not prepared to rest my kingdom for you. Oh, no. But here's my suggestion. Go and write a new law. You know, take my signet ring, go away, write a new edict in my name that stands against the other one to give it the lowest possible chance of, of succeeding. That way both will stand, but write the second one in such a way that the first one won't happen. So Mordecai does this. He assembles the king's, stri the king's scribes, and this is what happens in verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble, to protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. And then we're also told the day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the same day that they were going to be attacked. So you'll notice here, perhaps, there, there are massive parallels with the first edict um, that Haman made. There's an order to destroy, kill, and annihilate, which seems like literally overkill. Um, but, but they're allowed to do that to the people who are going to attack them. That's the same wording as before. Women and children are mentioned, as they were the first time. Uh, Haman's edict commanded their death, too, and, and permission to plunder the property of those they killed. But the other massive parallel is that this order is going to be sent out everywhere, in every language. Verse 9, believe it or not, of chapter 8 is the longest verse in the Bible. It's not a particularly exciting verse, but we read the longest verse in the Bible tonight. But it says that in every single province, in every language known, the order is being sent out. It's to take place on the same day as Haman's. But take note, there are two big differences. Firstly, the Jews are not being sent out on the offensive here. If you look again at verse 11, you'll see that they're allowed to assemble and protect themselves. 
They're allowed to attack people that might attack their women and children, that might attack them. The Jews aren't being sent out with permission just to kill anybody they like or that they don't like the look of. They're only allowed to defend themselves. And the second big difference is the response of the people. When Haman made his edict, that the place was agitated. At the end of chapter 3, we read that the whole city of Susa was bewildered. But here, look at what happens in, in verses 15 to 17. Mordecai leaves the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. There was joy. Mordecai was in charge. He'd issued the edict that would save the Jews. And those, la those couple of verses at the end, it, it's actually a little bit unclear. It says that many people became Jews. It's unclear from the, the Hebrew text whether they literally did become Jews or whether they just pretended um, to become Jews because they knew which side their bread was buttered on. They could see things were going the Jews' way. And there's a word nafal in, in the Hebrew which can mean literally fall or lie. So it could say that they became Jews because the fear of the Jews fell on them. But it could also be lie. They became Jews as a lie because they feared the Jews. Um, so some of our translations say they declared themselves to be Jews or that they pretended to be Jews. But whether it was proper religious conversion or not, loads of people from many nations were now on the side of the Jews. As I say, they knew which side their bread was buttered on. Haman had been hanged, Mordecai had been promoted, this new edict had been made, and they were on the side of the Jews. But notice it says that many of these people were people of other nationalities. It's something we haven't thought loads about. We, we did think a few weeks ago about um, the sectarian tension between Haman and Mordecai. Mordecai wouldn't give a simple bow to Haman, who was in a position of authority, and Haman hated the Jews. But we have to remember that a few hundred years before this, when the Babylonians were in charge, what they did was they attacked all the countries around them. They destroyed loads of cities and, and um, districts around them. They burned them down. They took plunder. And they brought people from those places back to Babylon. And so there are lots of different people from lots of different nationalities all in the one place, including Jews, the people of God who were exiled now, the Babylonians aren't in charge anymore. Now we have the Persians. But you still had a real mix of all these nationalities around. So many of these people saw what was happening and joined with the Jews. Again, this looks like great news. that This great destruction of the Jews isn't going to happen. But sadly, many people didn't take that side. Many people still disliked the Jews. Remember also that Haman's edict still stood. So on that day, the 13th day of Adar, it was their legal right to go out and kill Jews. That was perfectly legal. And that's what happened on into chapter 9, verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities, in all the provinces of King Xerxes, to attack those seeking their destruction, 
No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces. He became more and more powerful. The tables have turned. All of the prominent people in the kingdom are on Mordecai's side. And so the Jews defend themselves. Now within the citadel of Susa, which isn't even the whole city, it's just kind of the middle bit of the city, 500 people are killed. 500. And this really strikes King Xerxes, which is saying something because he's a fairly brutal character himself. But he says, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 people and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the provinces? If there's 500 here, then surely right across all of the provinces, there's going to be loads. And he was right to think that. We're told that 75,000 people who attacked the Jews were themselves killed. It seems that Haman's sons had gone out to avenge their father. They must have attacked the Jews too, but they all fell. Now what about those 75,000 people? What, what can we say about that? I mean, there are instances in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where lots of people die. And to you and me, it can be a bit of a struggle to understand why it happened, why God's people of all people did it, and why, in some other cases, though not here, they killed people because they were commanded to by God. Now, I can't go into the depths of that tonight. If you want to talk with me about it, I'd be very happy to do that. But, but to stick to these 75,000, Remember, the Israelites were only to defend themselves. They weren't allowed just to attack anyone. And there's no indication in the text that they went outside of the rules. It's an absolutely horrendous number of people to be killed in one day. But all of these people came out to fight against the Jews with the intention of destroying them in a fight to the death. And the Israelites' actions were entirely in self-defense. In fact, in every region, in every city, we're told three times in what we read that they did not lay a hand on the plunder of those they had killed. Because it wasn't about that. It wasn't about getting rich or gaining anything from this. It was about survival. They left the plunder for the families who had been left behind of all those killed people. It's very probable as well um, that when we see the scale of those numbers, 75,000, it's very probable that many Jews died as well. It's not recorded for us, but the Jews came out on top. Now, in, in the most of Persia, this was all done and dusted in one day on the 13th of Adar, and they celebrated on the 14th, but in Susa, things were different. At the end of the first day, the 13th of the month, this is what Esther asks the king. He asks her what she wants, and she says this in verse 13 of chapter 9. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged or impaled on the gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Esther decides that these 10 sons of Haman, whose names I tripped over this evening, that they be hanged on gallows to taunt those people 
who were against them, to taunt those who maybe didn't like the Jews, maybe those who weren't brave enough to come out to fight on the first day, or maybe those who did come out, but when they saw they were losing, had fled. But Esther gloats. She goads them into coming out again to attack the Jews the next day, and 300 more people die. Now, I'm not going to stand here and defend Esther. Some commentators do that. Some people say, you know, these were the enemies of God's people. This was divine justice. But I don't think that's right. I think to do so would be to defend the indefensible. The author of Esther has shown us all along, right through this book, without mentioning God, that he's the one who is in control. He's not rewarding his people for being faithful, but he is delivering them so that many centuries later, he can raise up a savior for them. The author puts in this detail so that we're not tempted to glorify Esther or Mordecai, who may well still have been advising Esther at this point because he does that right through the book. They're sinful at the start when they deceive Xerxes by hiding the fact that Esther's a Jew. They willingly break the law of Moses by putting her into the harem, by allowing her to to break the law of Moses again by allowing her to sleep with the king who she isn't married to and then later to marry him unlawfully. But they're also sinful at the end of the story. Whether it's sectarianism or bloodthirst or revenge or just pure evil, Esther participates in the unthinkable act here of essentially organizing more bloodshed. It's not great. The Jews are not saved by her actions or Mordecai's but by God working despite them. What were the chances that Esther would be chosen as queen in the first place? What were the chances that Mordecai would be in the right place at the right time to overhear a plot to kill the king? What were the chances that it would be Mordecai who Haman would bump into at the city gate? Mordecai, the one with access to Esther and who might be able to do something about Haman? Like Marty reminded us last week of those moments of providence or God winks or God incidences or whatever you want to call them. Esther finding the favor of the king. The king not being able to sleep the night before feasting with Esther the second time. The books of the Chronicles being opened at the exact page where Mordecai's service was recorded. God is sovereign. He's in control of the big events of history, but also right down to the finest details. And the author of Esther doesn't allow us to be tempted to say that really it was anything to do with anything good that Esther or Mordecai did. So then on the 15th day of the month, the Jews in Susa celebrated a day later than everybody else. So when it was commemorated after these events, that's why this Feast of Purim was to be a two-day celebration to, to reflect these two days of celebration the first time around. The author goes into a fair amount of detail about this. We won't just now. But again, the order is sent out to all provinces, all languages. It's to be a day of great celebration and one that is still celebrated by the Jews to this day. Um, it's a bit like Easter. It moves around in date, but it, it happens in the springtime. And the name of this feast is particularly striking, the Purim. Remember, Haman cast lots to see when he should destroy the Jews. The lot fell nearly a year away from when he cast them on the 12th month on the 13th day. But the Hebrew word for lot is pure, and the plural of that is purim. The Jews would celebrate, and therefore, that the lot, the pure, had gone in their favor. And as we look back at these events, as we look at them with eyes that see God at work in all this, 
we can say along with Proverbs 16, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines where they fall. And the book finishes with words about Mordecai, um, chapter 10, verse 3. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. We kind of get our Hollywood ending. Esther isn't mentioned in chapter 10, but presumably at the end of the story, everything is resolved. Esther's on the throne. Mordecai is second in command to the king, essentially in Haman's position of prime minister. The Jews are saved, and they have a better quality of life because of Mordecai's position. So what can we take away from these last few chapters of Esther this evening? Well, three things, hopefully, briefly. First, when God starts something, he'll finish it. God keeps his promises, and he will finish the work that he starts. God wasn't going to let the Persian Empire wipe out his people and prevent a savior coming from the house of David, just as he'd promised. God had started his salvation plan, and he was going to see it through. I don't know where you're at maybe tonight in your walk with the Lord. Maybe for you, you wish some aspects of it were better. Uh, maybe you're not very happy with how things are going. Maybe you don't seem to be growing or, or there's a sin that just keeps tripping you up again and again. Or maybe the book of Esther is a bit like a parable of your Christian life at the moment. You know, things feel like they're all, just a bit all over the place. Or maybe you think your walk is okay, but, but you're going through something right now and you wonder what on earth God is doing. You can't see him in the midst of all this, just as he isn't mentioned in the book of Esther. But let me tell you this tonight. What God has started in you, he will finish. Now, it might not be on your time scale. It may not be the easiest road to walk, but he has begun a work in you, and he will finish it. Paul prayed for the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Can I encourage you tonight that there's never been a better time to keep going with Jesus. Even if the future is uncertain, even if you can't see the way just now. And as a quick aside, all, all the yous in those verses that I read from Philippians, they're all plural. If you're struggling right now, keep going with Jesus, but don't go alone. Come to me or Marty or, or other Christians to walk with you through it. It might be scary at first, but it will help. And he will complete the work in you. Secondly, we're reminded again of what we've seen all through this book, that God is in control. He's in complete control of history, regardless of who's in charge, whether they're godly or not, regardless of whether God's people are obedient to him or not. Wherever he has put them, God is in complete control. He's sovereign. He's in control of all the little details by his providence. Mordecai and Esther find themselves in the right place at the right time. The attitude around them is, is just right at the right time. The king again gives Esther his favor by extending his gold scepter to her. Mordecai is given honor. Not earlier in the story when we might have expected it. Not when we might have expected God to step in and stop this calamity from coming about in the first place, but now, so that the fear of the Jews would go out around the whole kingdom, 
so that many people would join the Jews so that they would be able to fight off this great enemy, 75,000 people who wanted to annihilate them. God was in control of all the little details all the time because he promised right back in the Garden of Eden that the serpent would be defeated by the descendant of the woman of Eve. And he promised through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and even through Samuel, Saul and David and other prophets that a savior would come out from among the people of God. And God hadn't forgotten that promise. And so it's no surprise then that as we conclude the book of Esther tonight, thirdly and finally, we shouldn't miss the fact that this book points us to Jesus. I think the book of Esther points us forward to Christ very powerfully. We live in a, in a sinful world. The Bible doesn't dress this up. In John's first epistle, he says that to be friends with the world is to be enemy with God. The world is the enemy of God's people, led by the prince of this world, the devil. And in this sinful world, like in Persia, there's plenty of sin on display. There are two people groups who live side by side, those who are God's people and those who are not. God is in control of where history is going. He will use all events, good or bad, big or little, to move this scene of time to its conclusion. Early on in the story, Mordecai should have been exalted over the enemies of God's people. And that is exactly what should have happened in the history of humanity. It's what should have happened in the Garden of Eden. Humanity was made in the image of God, and at least part of what that means is that Adam and Eve had authority from God to rule over the creation. Rule over it and subdue it, God said to them. But the authority went to the wrong person. Just as the authority of Xerxes was unjustly given to Haman, when Adam and Eve sinned, they, they forfeited the authority they had been given to the devil. And so he roamed about this earth doing as he saw fit. Jesus called him the prince of this world. But God made a promise in the garden and he made this promise to the snake. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And God did that at the cross. Jesus Christ defeated sin by paying the ransom for it with his own life. He defeated the consequences of sin, which is death by rising again. His heel was bruised, he was crucified, but he dealt Satan a fatal wound. He crushed his head. So Satan was removed from his position of power just as Haman was hanged. But the threat of what Haman did lived on after his death. He was defeated, but there was a way to go before everything was finally put right. And Satan's defeated kingdom lives on for now. But now, like Mordecai, all authority has been given to the right person. And one day, that work will be complete. God's enemies will be finally destroyed. Christ will be exalted and all his enemies will be put under his feet. And we will live with him and adore him and worship him and reign with him like we should have done in the first place. So if you're suffering tonight from the, this fallen world, from the effects of sin, yours or somebody else's, or if you're facing sickness or walking through the valley of the shadow of death, or if you're facing opposition because of your faith, I want to say this. The victory has been won, so it will be won. Jesus knows the pain you're in. He went through the worst of what this world could throw at any of us, 
and he understands and he will bring you home because he has won. Or if tonight you're struggling to know how to survive in this world that doesn't know Jesus as one of his disciples, how, how to face the enemy. Remember the Jews only killed those who attacked them. Everyone else, even if they were in the other camp, they left well alone. So us then as the church, let us know which side we are on. And don't hate or attack the other side, but love them and win them for Christ. Because in the meantime, we live in the in-between. But remember what happened in the in-between in what we read tonight? Mordecai was exalted. The enemy wasn't completely defeated yet, but the people who saw which side was the right side to be on, they switched sides. They joined God's people. And maybe tonight you're somebody who needs to switch sides. Maybe tonight you, you can see what Jesus has done and you know you're not on his side. You can do something about that tonight. You can trust in Jesus to forgive your sins, to save you from them and enter into the fullness of life with him. It's not over till it's over. But once it is over, there's no going back. Don't be on the wrong side of history. Don't be found on the world's side when Christ returns to put everything right. Trust him. He gave his life so that you could. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you again for this part of the Bible. Lord, as we've worked through this book together, it has been at times complicated, but always encouraging and always Amazing to see how you are at work, even in the darkest of days, for your people. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live for you. In this world where we face lots of opposition, where the prince of this world works against us. Lord, we belong to your kingdom. And we live for you. So, Lord, strengthen us and equip us to do that. Encourage us, bless us, and guide us as we serve our King, Jesus, and as we long for his return. Amen.